open in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, over the last several months we've been making our way through this letter, First Timothy, because this letter is one in particular that gives us instructions about how the church should be ordered, how we are to relate to one another, the things that we are to watch out for, the dangers, the false teaching, as well as the hope that we are to fix our eyes upon in Christ Jesus, and I trust that you were all blessed last week as Brian Lewis from Hope House came and preached the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 6, and as we do every week, we go through books of Bible, books of the Bible verse by verse, and we're picking up where we left off last week in verse 11, and we're going to finish up 1 Timothy this morning looking at verses 11 to 21. And just a preview of what's to come, uh, I think I've announced this already, but um, just to say it again, after we finish First Timothy, we'll do a uh, short Advent series for the next four weeks uh, called From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, taken from uh, the great hymn, The Church's One Foundation, so that we can reflect together about what Christ has come to do as He's entered into the world to reconcile sinners to Himself and to God. And then after we finish our season of Christmas together, uh, we will begin going through the book of John, John's Gospel, so that we together can hear from our Lord directly in the Gospel, reflect on Him, and grow in a deeper knowledge and love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to begin uh, by reading verses 11 to 21 from 1 Timothy Chapter 6. It's what the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. The confession that we read just a second ago to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Would you pray with me? Father, You are indeed a God who is good. You have saved us by the blood of Your Son and brought us into His body, the church. You have given us Your Word inspired by the Spirit to be our food and drink to give us comfort when we need to be comforted, to rebuke us when we are wandering in sin. And Lord, You have given us the testimony of Your apostles and prophets that the life that we live in Christ is indeed the best possible life we could live now in this age. And it is a life with much more promise to come. Lord, I pray that our hearts would not be allured and drawn after the temptations of the world. That our hearts, Lord, would be completely and utterly fixed upon Christ because we see in Jesus our best good. And we see in Him pleasures forevermore. Father, may we not be cold towards the Gospel, but Lord, give us Your Spirit so that our hearts may be warmed to Christ. And that the love that we had when we first came to know Christ may be stirred up. And we may have a zeal for the glory of God to be spread to all. Father, open Your Word for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little over a week ago, the Huffington Post published an article called God and the Good Life? Question mark. Kentucky students explore big questions. It's about a philosophy professor at Eastern Kentucky University, Mike Austin, and the focus of some of his classes that he teaches. They focus on big questions questions of ultimate meaning and purpose. 
what life is about, where joy and happiness is truly to be found. Austin himself says this in the article, I'm interested in our quest for life. We want happiness, contentment, a life with meaning and purpose, but we don't know how to get it. Or if we do know, we often struggle to experience such a life. So Austin's classes are often set up to encourage students to pursue these kinds of questions. Well, as I continue to read through the article, I found one part to be particularly revealing. Not surprising, but revealing as to what the current generation of young adults thought the good life consisted of. At one point, Mike Austin was asked by the journalist, what are students' perceptions of what the good life means as they come in? What do the students think the good life is? And this is what he said. Most students seem to assume that the good life is one in which they have enough material wealth to be comfortable, a family, and a job they enjoy, or at least that pays well. They often equate the good life with this kind of success. It's very revealing as to where the hearts of freshmen sophomores are, as many of them are entering into college. We are living in the midst of arguably one of the greatest cultural shifts in modern history, perhaps in history. Traditional sexual mores have been completely overturned in favor of a sexual ethic where practically anything goes. Marriage has been redefined to merely describe a relationship that is nothing more than a social contract between two consenting parties. Religious liberty is rapidly becoming nothing more than the freedom to worship in a particular building, so long as your religion does not leave that building. We've seen over the last couple of weeks protests on college campuses across the country over what is perceived as offensive speech, heated and passionate arguments on all sides of the Syrian refugee crisis. All of these major culture and life Shaping issues are before us, and yet the upcoming generation has still not progressed beyond the idolatry of previous generations in worshiping materialism. Despite all the clamor over new civil rights, social justice, the dignity of other human beings, and finding one's identity in the world, most still find meaning and their ultimate good in the amount of stuff they have. 
What makes this life good is the amount of security and hope I have in it. That's what makes it good. That's the mindset. The American culture for many generations and still in the upcoming generation. This mindset is not unique to us. We have a lot in common, actually, in this regard with the culture in Ephesus in which Timothy is ministering and to which the Apostle Paul is writing. Ephesus was one of the largest and wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. In population, it was probably third behind Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. It received the designation by many of the people in the empire as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. And it was so proud of this designation that it inscribed this designation on many of its monuments and its buildings. It prospered especially during the first century, the time when Jesus had His ministry on earth as well as the apostles. Caesar Augustus, who you'll remember is or was the Caesar during the birth of Jesus, this Caesar moved the capital of the Roman province of Asia out of Pergamum into Ephesus because of its rising prominence in the world and its growing influence. Because of its location on the coast, connecting Asia to the western parts of the Roman Empire, it was the center of international trade. It was the Wall Street of the ancient world. With all of this increasing influence, wealth, and power, Ephesus, of course, could not be a city that prided itself on modesty. It prided itself on its extravagance. And we all know what a city or a country does when they are seeking to make a name for themselves. They build great buildings and great monuments to be remembered. Ephesus built a large theater that still partially stands to this day. They built a gymnasium in honor of the emperor Domitian. They built a stadium. To encourage international trade, they built one of the largest harbors in the world. They built temples to gods and goddesses. The temple of Apollo. The temple of Augustus. The temple of Deoroma. But perhaps what they were most famous for building was the temple of Artemis. This was their great goddess. You can even read about the goddess Artemis in the book of Acts, the Ephesians, when they felt that their pantheon of gods was being threatened, exclaimed before the Apostle Paul, great is the goddess Artemis. If you've ever heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple was one of them. So Ephesus was a place of power, a place of wealth, a place of Influence, upward mobility, materialism, the love of the stuff of the world. 
So it's not surprising that as Paul gives his final instructions to young Timothy in the Ephesian church at the end of chapter 6, he sets his crosshairs on the dangers of the pursuit and hope in riches. He sets in stark contrast the security and joy of pursuing God and righteousness with the uncertainty and sure destruction that comes with craving and coveting the temporary pleasures of this passing age. There is one thing that riches can guarantee you. That if you love them enough, they will kill you. And he places that as the great contrast between having your hope in riches and the stuff of the world and your hope in Christ. In these 11 verses, verses 11 to 21, Paul is not only giving a charge to Timothy and to the church, but he's making an argument. He's making an argument with the language he's using. He's making an argument about what is really, truly good in this age as well as the age to come. You see, Christianity, friends, being a disciple of Christ, is not about simply renouncing all of the evils in the world. That's not what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is not about looking at everything in the world and saying to it, no, 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 can't have that, can't participate in that, no. That's not, that's not following Christ. That's legalism. That's having no joy in the things that God has given in the world to be enjoyed. It's not as though Christians believe that material things are evil, that owning a house is evil, that having a family is evil, that having a good paying job is evil. Now what following Christ teaches us to say is that all of these things are only gifts to be received by God with thanksgiving. They are not God. To treat them as though they were God. As though the good life consists in accumulating all of these things is to make an idol of them. And to exalt them to a position they were never meant to have. We become like a bride who loves the diamond ring her groom bought her more than the groom himself. Do you know what happens when we do that? When we elevate the things of the world above God. Things that were meant for our good. Things that were given to us to be enjoyed by God become to us nothing more than hard taskmasters. We become slaves to these very things. Paul, in these last verses, is making an argument with all of his different exhortations. Urging Timothy and the church, which is in one of the most prosperous cities in the world, to pursue what is truly good. 
Things like righteousness, godliness, faith and love and steadfastness, gentleness, things like eternal life, which he says at the end in verse 19, is truly life in comparison to what the world and Ephesus is selling. Notice also his emphasis on the good in this passage. Verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13, it says of Christ Jesus that in His testimony before Pontius Pilate, He made the good confession. Verse 18 and 19, speaking of the rich in this present age, they are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Not a foundation that will crumble as soon as a trial comes. Paul is saying, don't be deceived by what the great metropolis Ephesus is selling you. Don't be deceived. Christ is the good life. Cross-bearing, fighting faith discipleship is the good life. Receiving everything from God as gifts to enjoy. Not Not as slaves, but as gifts to enjoy. Rather than slavishly working for a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the world's Goods. This is the good life. This is a word that was not only relevant for those living in Ephesus, but for those of us who live in a very prosperous American culture. We need to hear that what is truly life and what is truly good is the eternal life in Christ that begins even now in this present age by the Spirit of God and continues and grows even greater when He returns in the future, in the age to come. When I was at the conference in Atlanta this week, one of the presenters I heard from was Ligon Duncan. Ligon Duncan is the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. And during his talk, one of the subjects he addressed was the challenges that the church is going to be facing now and as well in the future, particularly as it relates to biblical manhood and womanhood, what the Bible says about our sexuality. And he had several different points about this, but one in particular stood out to me. Duncan said that we've reached a point in our culture where we can no longer just make arguments about the truthfulness of the Bible. As scholars, we're writing books that are going to profit the people of God in the church or that are going to make arguments to the larger culture. It's not going to be sufficient enough for them to simply make arguments that the God of the Bible is indeed the God who has created and made all things, it's not going to be enough for them to make these arguments. And it's not going to be enough for us 
to make these arguments with family members who may not be believers and friends and people within our communities and in our workplaces. These arguments are not going to be sufficient. Probably not already. Arguments about the existence of God. If you if you work with an atheist, or you have an atheist within your family, simply giving them logical arguments about the rationality of believing in the God of the Bible is not going to be sufficient enough. Making arguments to those who reject the authority and the accuracy of the Bible itself is not going to be enough. Even if you take a person in every passage of Scripture and demonstrate it to them clearly, this is probably still not going to be enough in the culture that we live in. Arguments about the resurrection, the historicity of the resurrection of Christ, these are not going to be enough. And friends, we can make great arguments about this. Good historical arguments. And someone may in fact be convinced That what the Bible says about the resurrection is true. But it's not going to be enough. Even arguments, probably as some of you have already experienced, about what the Bible teaches about sexuality are not going to be enough. You can make an argument over and over and over to your co-workers and to your friends about the accuracy and the truthfulness that God has made us male and female to come together in the covenant of marriage. It's not going to be enough. They're not sufficient. What he said is that we have to be prepared to persuade people also that Christianity is good. It's good. That morally and ethically, this is the best option. Truthfully, the only option. But the one that brings maximum joy, maximum pleasure to your life now and in the future to come. We have to make that argument. That it is good. That the life we are called to live, a sacrificial life where we are not seeking our own ends, but the ends of others, counting the needs of others as better than ours. We are going to have to make the argument that this is truly good. That it is not a a slavish life to live. That again, discipleship is not simply about saying, no, you can't touch. No, you can't have that. But rather, it is about saying, come into the kingdom of Christ and enjoy everything that He has made for you. I think as we read through this passage, this is very much the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is not simply instructing Timothy and the rich as to what they ought to do. He's helping them to see that what they ought to do is truly good. It is in their best interest. And it is something that they will find much joy and hope in. Both Timothy and the rich in the Ephesian church are being warned against the dangers of materialism, of finding security in riches. 
In verses 11 to 16, Paul commands Timothy not to be like the false teachers of Ephesus who have wandered away from the faith through their craving for riches. You find the language of wandering in the, in the verses previous to our passage this morning, but, but note that language. They have wandered away from the faith. Friends, nobody does that on purpose. You don't wander away on purpose. When you're going hiking and you are trying to stay on a path, if you get lost and you wander off that path, it was not on purpose. And so it is, these people, who these, these false teachers whom Paul is pointing out to Timothy, they are those who have wandered away because this craving for the stuff of the world has deceived them. And they think that what they are pursuing is ultimately best. And Paul is saying, no, indeed, it has left you stranded in a wilderness without God. And so he says in verse 11 to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. That is, flee the things that the false teachers were practicing. The love of controversies. The belief that godliness is a means to gain. The desire to be rich. Flee these things and rather pursue righteousness. And then in verse 14, and keep the commandment, probably referring to the gospel, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. And then in verses 17, To 19, he addresses those who are already rich in the church. And he commands them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, and to be generous and ready to share. So for both, what they ought to do is not view material possessions as their hope and their love and their desire. That's the negative part. That's the you shall not part. But the question for most people in the world is still going to be, why not? What's the big deal? Aren't these things great? Isn't this what the culture is saying brings joy and happiness? Again, like those incoming college students. Isn't this where the good life is? is to be found? Isn't that why I go to college? Isn't that why I send my kids to college? So that they can find their happiness in their careers and in accumulating wealth. What Paul is saying in this passage is that if that's what you think the good life is, you're selling yourself way short. Way short. The good life, the good life is way better than that. The man who fixes his heart on riches, Paul says, fixes his heart on uncertainty. He builds a house without a foundation. With the slightest shifting of the ground, it will crumble and all of his hopes will be lost. The truly good life is found in having your hopes fixed on an immovable rock. 
and on an ever-burning light. And on the God who reigns supremely over every king and kingdom and therefore who Himself possesses all things. Paul says in verse 13 that He is the God who gives life to all things. There is very little wisdom Very little wisdom required of a person who has a need to go to the one who can supply it. Someone who has need of a leak being fixed goes to a plumber. Someone who has need of a car being fixed goes to a mechanic. Someone who has need of a loan goes to a banker. Someone who has need of education goes to a teacher. And so the slightest of wisdom would suggest that if we have need of life, of a good, satisfactory life. And we all do. We all do because none of us is ultimately immortal. That if we have this need, we should go to the God who gives it and who Himself possesses immortality and can give it. In verse 15, Paul says that this God is the one who will put on display for the world to see at His appointed time the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so He is the God who determines the beginning and the end of history. He determines all the seasons in nature. The winter and the summer and the fall and the spring. But also the very seasons that come into our lives. He brings us into various trials to try our faith. To purify it and to make it as precious gold. And in those trials, He grants us the grace that we need so that our faith may not fail in the midst of them. He brings us seasons of refreshing and comfort. When we are most afflicted and low, He feeds us, as it were, with bread from heaven. A word in season from a brother or a sister. Or a providential circumstance that brings clarity to your lives. He, he determines all of these seasons. And by His grace, He sustains His people through them all as well. And because He determines all these seasons, we can know for certain as well that they will all climax with the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of our sorrows will be turned to joy. And all of our joy will be Everlasting. You want the good life? Choose the one that lasts forever. Friends, it is in these truths and the fellowship we can have with God through Christ that the good life is ultimately found. And this is what Paul wants the church to see and to possess. He says to Timothy in verse 12, take hold of eternal life. Make it Yours. Make this your pursuit. He says to the rich in verse 19, take hold yourselves of that which is truly life. Again, a reference to that eternal, everlasting life. Take it. It's yours in Christ. God has done a work in the world through the cross of Christ that frees us from the oppressive dominion of sin and Satan. A work that grants to all who will but come eternal good 
life. He has Himself made a way for us to be reconciled to Him so that no longer are we children of wrath and children of Adam who have in our future only a dreadful anticipation of judgment. But we are made children of promise and children of God who have an eternal inheritance in Christ. An inheritance of being heirs to a kingdom which will go on forever. And because our relationship with God has been reconciled, our relationship with creation has also been reconciled. We no longer need to pursue the riches of the world because God has made us His children and He owns everything. So if you are His child... This is the very reason why the Bible says that all things are yours in Christ. Because your Father owns and has made them all. And so we can be content in what He gives us as His children. Knowing that whatever He gives and whatever He takes, like a parent with a child, is ultimately for our good. And so if we lose everything, if we lose our job, if by some tragedy we lose our family, we lose our security in this world, like Job, we can bless God. And whatever we gain, if we gain anything at all as well, like Job, we can bless God. And in this godly contentment, we have true freedom and true life. And so life in Christ, my friends, is the good life. Now if, as Ligon Duncan suggested, we have to be prepared to make that kind of argument to the culture that Christ and Christianity is good and desirable, friends, we honestly should be at a very distinct advantage. We are at an advantage. The unbeliever who has never tasted the goodness of Christ, who has never believed the Gospel, who has never known the mercies of God, the only thing they've ever known is what the world offers. The pleasures of this world. They have only served one Master, sin and Satan. And so the only thing they have ever known is slavery and bondage. We as Christians, if you have believed the Gospel, have experienced both sides. We have tasted what the world has to offer. We have tasted the pleasures of the world. We have pursued the riches that it has to offer. And I trust and I hope that as Christians we have found that the only thing they provide is uncertainty in this world. Perhaps some of you have grown up before you became a Christian not living a terribly immoral life to the world's standards, but you were nevertheless a Pharisee. A religious zealot. One who was only self-righteous. 
You have known, if you now know the Gospel, you have known the bondage and the pride that exist within your human heart before you came to know Jesus and the slavery that was found in the Phariseeism. The world has not experienced both sides, but we as Christians have. Unlike the unbeliever, we have tasted the goodness of God. We have experienced the comforts of Christ. We have had our sins forgiven and have experienced the eternal mercy of God being poured out into our hearts. We have enjoyed the love of God and the fellowship with His people. And I trust as well that we have found these things to be much better than what the world has to offer. And so we are at a distinct advantage. We can say that we have tasted both sides and found that Christ is far more satisfying because we believe and we have seen that what Christ provides for us is indeed living water. And a spring that wells up from within our hearts in the Holy Spirit that lasts forever. So my final encouragement to you all, my friends, this morning is not to shrink back from declaring the goodness of Christ. And to not be deceived by the false promises of the uncertainty of riches. You may not be able to answer every objection lifted up against Christianity. But I trust that if you know Christ, you know also of His goodness towards you. And you can speak clearly to that. And you can rejoice in that. And you can bear witness. And you can make the good confession to affirm what Christ said, that if you lose your life now, you will gain it. And that if you desire to keep hold of your life now, you will lose it. You can bear witness to the goodness of Christ in the Gospel because you have tasted both sides and found Christ to be all-satisfying for your souls. Would you pray with me now?